It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Radio and RealEggCulture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Welcome to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio 147, Sirius XM. Sean Haney, your host here on this Monday edition of the show. It's Agronomic Monday today. Thanks so much for making Real Ag Radio and Rural Radio 147 a big part of your work day out there on the farm, as well as a big show to be listening on the Real Ag Radio podcast. It's great to have everybody with us. Okay, uh, today, like I said, Agronomic Monday. So we're going to tackle a number of different issues. Peter W.P. Johnson's going to be here. We're going to talk about some of the lower test weights in some of that Ontario corn. We're talking about fall weed control out west now that it's too co- now that it's quite cold. Is it too cold to take care of some of those fall weeds? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, also nitrogen application in the west. Uh, we're also going to cover uh, is it when is it too late to plant winter wheat or winter rye? So we got a whole bunch of topics there. Then we're also going to be joined and Pete's like my co-host today, kind of. Pete's going to stick around and uh, we're going to be talking to Albert Tenuta, who is field crop pathologist with Omafra. He's going to talk about some of the survey results from the GFO Omafra Dawn survey. The results are out, and uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. Albert's going to be here to break it down and, and kind of speak for the survey group. And, and biggest thing here is, what are some of those best management practices given your level of risk or infection in your area? It is quite variable. It, it is not a blanket situation. So pay attention when Albert comes on here. And if you do have further questions about some of the things that Albert says, you can uh, send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com, and I'll get the, those questions over to Albert. And speaking of other ways to get his feedback, you can also call the Real Ag Feedback Line, 855-776-6147. Great news. You know, sometimes media covers just the bad news because that's what sells. Well, I got some great news. There's a tentative deal in the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation and Unifor strike. So on the Seaway, people were back at work, 350 people back at work this morning at 7 a.m. They figure it's going to take about 15 hours to prime the pump, so to speak, and get everybody uh, rolling and, and back to work. They, it's going to take a little bit of time, I think, to get through some of the backlog of vessels. So there's that. But great news. Eight-day strike, eight days too long from an industry perspective. 40% of the traffic of the St. Lawrence Seaway is agriculture-related. One of the big things that was covered this morning, and Lindsay had, had made me aware of this, but I probably didn't talk about it enough. Like In Ontario, they use a lot of salt for their roads. Like there was a lot of concern as winter started to hit, there wouldn't be enough salt. So that's like weird stuff like that would really have an impact. So great to see the union and the management corp came together. They were able to find a resolution. Let's hope the union votes for this tentative deal, or we could see what happened in the Vancouver terminal situation. We kind of go back on strike again. Don't want to have that. So hopefully the union leadership is confident here. Otherwise, they wouldn't have signed the deal, but hopefully they have a good feeling that this is going to be accepted by the general membership. So that is great news here on this Monday. Let's take a break. When we come back, we got Peter Reeve Johnson right after this. What's next for your fields? 
At Pioneer, delivering industry-leading genetics drives everything we do. From the scientists in the lab to our local teams with boots on the ground, we are determined to get there first. Developing top-performing products, proven in more growing conditions than ever before. Pioneer. What's next happens here. Visit pioneer.com slash Canada to learn more. Peter Johnson at WheatPeteRealAgriculture.com. I'm the host of The Word, and I love doing The Word. I love the questions. I love the challenges. I love having to apply agronomics to all over the globe and areas outside of my normal jurisdiction. Also, I love the feedback the most where growers challenge me, tell me about their plot results, help me to learn. The Word, absolutely the best part of my day. If you're involved in the agriculture industry, it's important to stay informed on all the latest issues affecting your business. At realagriculture.com, we offer fast, reliable news, information, and insights to help you keep on top of all of the latest in Canadian agriculture. Visit realagriculture.com and sign up for our free daily newsletter covering everything from news, agronomy, animal agriculture, and much more. Visit realagriculture.com forward slash subscribe today. Welcome back to Agronomic Monday here on Real Ag Radio. This segment is brought to you by Ag Expert Software for Field and Finance. It's not a hunch when it's backed by facts. Uncover your facts at agexpert.ca slash farm with facts. Like that one. Okay, uh, let's jump into the conversation here all about agronomy with Peter Wee Pete Johnson. Pete, great to have you here. Thanks, John. And could you stop the rain? Oh my gosh, it just won't. Stop. Harvest is, is uh, I don't know, it's a grind. People still trying to take beans off corn. We're, we're trying to get to the field, but it just seems to want to rain and rain and rain. <laughs> it's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, we were on the farm of rapid fire last week, hearing that frustration from, from growers that it, it you know, and they're, they're, they're considerate of like their compaction impacts. They're considerate of the fact that it's, it, it creates challenges trying to get out there on a timely basis into the field. It's obviously there's a disease component. We're going to talk about uh, some of that disease with the the the, the dawn here when Albert uh, Tenuta from Omafra joins us later on in the show here. But uh, it, it is presenting a lot of challenges. There's there's just no question about it. Yeah, and we still have like growers still. I talked to one grower who still has over half their soybeans to come out of the field. A bunch of those are IP soybeans. That gets really tough to, to get them out of the field in good quality. And, and sometimes the weather really it just fools you. A grower was, was running at soybeans at, at I think, 14%, 14.5%, caught a shower. It was, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, caught a shower, done, okay. They'll be too wet tomorrow. The next day goes to the field, and after the shower, the wind blew all night, went to the field, they were actually 13-2 moisture, so they got rolling at, I don't know, mid-morning, and they were able to run till 4 o'clock till it rained again. So they made headway, but they actually dried overnight, and you just go like, oh, my God. you you got to be there. you got to try them. And on the other hand, there's been beans come out of the field at 28% moisture, and that's just a, 
a Hail Mary to get them out of the field. The, the, there's no quality stuff when you do them at 28% moisture. Yeah, and in you know, Western Canada, definitely very much cooled off. You know, looking at the forecast for Saskatoon, which is not for all of Western Canada, but just, you know, picking it out of a hat and, you know, we're, we're barely above freezing most of the week. Uh, the lows are down as low as uh, minus six, minus seven, minus eight. And I think that represents a, a good portion. The wind is up a little bit as, as well. I've been hearing from a lot of growers, you know, talking about that wind and that, that adds to the chilliness, which uh, also we had a road closed on the weekend uh, in southern Manitoba. I, I know my parents went uh, from Lethbridge in southern Alberta down to Great Falls, Montana on the weekend. They fought some bad roads on the interstate. So, yeah, it's it's winter in Western Canada, which, uh, and you know what, for the most part, harvest all done. So it's not a big deal, but it does interfere with some of the fall work, like, you know, questions about weed control. Like we're getting down to minus 8, minus 10. Uh, it was even colder last week, minus 20 in some parts. What about our weed control? Yeah, so so you're pretty much done once, like the, the critical temperature is minus 4. Now, with some of the real hardy winter uh, annuals or perennials like sow thistle, like dandelion, some of those weeds, if you get a few days where we get back above zero, they will start to grow again. Like fleabane here in Ontario is an amazing weed because once it turns cold, it actually changes the optimum temperature that it grows at. So you can still do weed control if you get that warm, let's call it a week or at least five days and you can get out there in the middle of that period. But but for most weeds, for annual weeds, like they're, they're all frozen off, so forget about them. It's only the perennials, the uh, winter annuals that you might chase, and you would need you would need some warm temperatures. It stays cold like that, uh, you're absolutely done. And on the other hand, in eastern Ontario, Sean, they're actually waiting for frost. They're hopeful to get frost to kind of finish things. They have yet to have a killing frost when you go to eastern Ontario. And you just go, wow, that, this country is big and weather is different. Yeah, no, no kidding. So weed control done if we've been that cold. What about fertilizer? Because um, we are waiting for the cold. Uh, is, there, is, is there any temperature considerations when it comes to putting down anhydrous? So now you're cold enough, but at minus 20, you're too frozen to get the shanks in the ground to put the darn stuff in the ground. <laughs> Oh, pardon me. But I think the answer is you can still put nitrogen on as long as the slot closes. But it, once that ground gets too frozen, well, first off, the shank won't go in. The anhydrous shank won't go in the ground. And number two, it's too frozen to close the slot. And if you don't close the slot, that nitrogen is just gone. So, so still some opportunity in some areas, I'm sure, to put nitrogen on. Uh, this fall, I'm still a big believer in not putting 100% of your nitrogen on in the fall because you've just spent all your money and, and then you have no management opportunity next spring. And for any growers not using, you know, not injecting that, that nitrogen, we've learned long ago, if you have snow on the ground, never, never, never broadcast nitrogen on top of the ground. I don't care if you've treated the urea with the, the very best stabilizers that exist it's all a recipe for disaster so it's got to be in the ground no question about that yeah good good point there uh, pete been hearing some concern from growers about some of their test weights in their corn in out, out oh, in central yeah. eastern canada 
Yeah, absolutely. So you get to Ontario and we're just at the start, the, the beginning of, of harvest. But the big, the big frustration out there, I guess, is that the bin is full. The bin is full. Oh my gosh, the bin is full. And, and we've only gone a little ways. And then we get it into the buggy and the, into the wagons or the trucks. And, oh darn, those wagons should haul 36 ton. And we only have 30 ton in them. Test weights are low. So most growers barely making grade three, some grade fours. And this is, you know, at the early start of harvest. So that means that the later corn could be even lighter in test weight. And that means absolutely, it means more trucks. It means more bin space. There, you know, sometimes there's grade discounts. They're generally not much for a grade three, a couple dollars a ton at the most. Of course, with the price of corn, two dollars a ton becomes maybe a bigger deal. Grade four, you might get a little bit bigger, but that's that's not a huge issue other than, wow, she's taken a lot of capacity to haul that crop away. The crop is kind of average, but when you have that 10% reduction in test weight, and in some cases we might get to that, that means you're going to need at least 10% more trucks or 10% more storage space to hold that same volume or, pardon me, that same weight and that that becomes just a bit of a challenge. Yeah, Ugh. man alive, <laughs> harvest it, it 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 just presents challenges. There there's no uh, two ways about it. Um, one question also we need to deal with. I know you've been getting a lot of this is the question about planting more wheat. Now are are we now again? geographically very different here in some areas we are way past any sort of crop insurance date so be conscious of that from a from a wheat perspective i I know pete that uh i'll admit this the latest i ever seeded a winter crop it was on irrigation it was it was triticale i remember the, the variety was bobcat it was a great reduced on variety Planted it like November, it was like November 15th, November 20th, like around then. We just got it out of the ground. Like it was like, it was like a little bit of like a a, a baby hair, just poking itself out. Man, that was a good crop. <laughs> not, not ideal practices. So what are some of the things we've got to think about if we ask that when we answer this question of how late can I actually plant wheat? So, I mean, first out, out the gate is seeding rate goes up. There's an excellent article that Michigan State University put out. And, and on a sandy loam soil in September, they were at, at, you know, under 1 million seeds per acre was the optimum seeding rate. They got to mid-November, they were at 1.85. So they basically doubled the seeding rate from the optimum early to the optimum late. If you're on heavy clay soil, we know that you add another 25% onto that 1.85. So we get up to, you know, 2.2, 2.4 million seeds per acre that we have to put in the ground when we seed late. And our yield potential does back off. There's no doubt that we have less yield potential. But what's really interesting, Sean, is that if you manage that crop and you do everything right, and I get lots of growers who kind of say, oh, like 20% less yield if we plant late. We're not planting any more wheat. 
Well, if you get that opportunity, and we haven't had it yet, soil conditions have been ugly, 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 and lots of producers planting into those marginal soil conditions just to get it in the ground. Boy, I, I hope it works. It generally is okay. But if in mid-November we get a great week and the soil conditions are perfect, man, we have planted wheat as late as the 11th of December and had 111 bushels per acre. You up the seeding rate. You do it when soil conditions are right or you frost seed. You make sure you use the seed place phosphorus. You're early nitrogen. There are management options to still make that crop a very good wheat crop. Okay. Now, is rye a different answer? So hybrid rye is a different answer because hybrid rye, for whatever reason, in Ontario at least, and I believe it's true in Western Canada as well from the data I've seen, hybrid rye doesn't tolerate late planting. Common rye, we can plant it super late and it just it still manages to come through. So I don't know. I actually had a grower who say, how late can I plant rye? I want to harvest it for forage next year and then no-till soybeans into it and really want that rye, the allelopathic impact of that rye to give me good weed control in the soybeans. Man, if that's what you're after, you can plant rye, I don't know, December the 11th. I, I planted wheat in in January that made 80 bushels. 80 bushels not a not a great yield, but it's not a horrible yield. So you can plant rye really late. It depends on what you want it to do. If all you want it to do is be a cover crop, and then take it out early and plant soybeans early, man, if it's not in the ground now, the chances of it having a benefit get to be really, really small. It just doesn't have enough window of, yeah. of growing conditions, right? But, but uh, if, you, if you want it as a forage crop, you're willing to leave it till kind of that mid-May time frame, keep putting it in the ground, baby. It will work. And the key here is... Because we, we're we're talking to a very wide geography here, so on this one, <laughs> I don't care if you're Kansas, Ontario, or Alberta, right? Talk, you know, think about some of your local conditions as well, and talk to your local uh, agronomist. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it, everybody's dealing with different conditions, so that's kind of the disclaimer on that conversation before I get flooded with emails. How do you expect me to plant wheat when there's a foot of snow on the ground? Well, okay, like yeah, okay. <laughs> Of course yeah. not. I don't expect you to do that. And don't broadcast your wheat seed on snow. If in case we have to also cover cover that one uh, as we we do talk about manure the odd time in, in reference to that. Okay, we've got more coming up here on Agronomic Monday. You're listening to Real Ag Radio joined by Peter Weepy Johnson. Whether you're a rookie soybean grower or a seasoned vet, the Soybean School on RealAgriculture.com has exactly what you need to stay in the game. The latest research and the best agronomic advice from industry experts, along with local and global market coverage on demand anywhere, anytime. Make this growing season your best growing season with the Soybean School on RealAgriculture.com. As you look ahead to the next growing season, there's a lot to consider when it comes to your crop. You need every possible advantage available to you. The Pulse School on RealAgriculture.com has everything you need to make the best choice for you and your farm. 
on-demand videos with leading industry experts available anywhere, anytime. Go into the season confident and ready with The Pulse School on realagriculture.com. I get to spend every day talking to farmers in the ag industry through realagriculture.com and Real Ag Radio. But nothing is more fun than speaking to an audience live and in person. If you're planning an ag event, book a Real Agriculture speaker to make it a successful and memorable experience. Email shaney at realagriculture.com and you can book myself or any other Real Ag personality to speak at your event. Bring your audience all the fun, insight, and energy of Real Agriculture. Rolling here on Real Ag Radio for an Agronomic Monday. Sean Haney, your host, joined by Peter Weepeat Johnson. Make sure you download this week's episode of Weepeat's Word. A new episode drops every single Wednesday where Pete answers your agronomic questions. So please check out that podcast wherever you get your podcast. This segment is brought to you by The Corn School, which is sponsored by Pride Seeds and BSF Canada. Go to cornschool.com and you can find our entire library. There is, now when I say library... I mean like library sort of vault. We've got 30 new episodes dropping every single season where we cover the latest in agronomic topics related to growing a more profitable, higher-yielding corn crop. Experts from across North America. You can find that at cornschool.com or, of course, on the Real Agriculture YouTube channel. Pete, speaking of corn, I know a few growers are dealing with maybe some, some weaker stocks, some lodged corn. What's happening? So there's two different things, Sean, and you're 100% right. For, for the most part, corn is standing really well, and that's awesome. And then we get these odd situations where the corn is, is lodging. So when we go down into the deep southwest part of Ontario, man, if you didn't spray a fungicide, that corn, the stock integrity is horrible. And most of it comes back to tar spots. It's also some related to northern corn leaf blight. There's some other issues that can happen. But the impact that tar spot has on stock integrity and on lodging is, is mind-blowing. And so for the growers who, who decided not to spray for tar spot in that tar spot region, man, get that corn out of the field because it does not have good standability. Then we can move up kind of north of London and we're still seeing some lodged corn, two different scenarios. One is corn on corn, where, where we have resistant rootworm. And this is kind of new. Growers haven't necessarily been paying enough attention. And mostly, we think that second-year corn should not be at that high of risk from rootworm issues because it takes time for the rootworm adults to build up. Boy, I will tell you that it seems like in regions where there is a, a bit of, of corn on corn, and it doesn't take a ton of corn on corn, but get a bit of corn on corn, it seems like we have built that rootworm adult population up enough that if you grow second-year corn, we have started to see feeding injury on the roots. We have started to see some goosenecking and some lodging much greater levels in certain situations than what we would expect in second-year corn. So that's one thing. The other thing comes back to situations where we had too much water. And what's really interesting is we go north of London, 
We know we had too much water in July. In some cases, 18 inches of water in July in, in areas north and west of London. Where that corn sat that saturated, it's like we didn't store enough carbohydrate in the stock. And then we tried to fill these big cobs. And while well, we didn't get them totally done, that's why our test weight is poor. But we, we sucked everything we could out of that stock. Sometimes it's northern corn leaf blight that, this, that is the stress, but mostly in that situation, it's just wet weather, too much water through July. When we have wet feet, the corn doesn't store and photosynthate as well. It's just the way the corn plant works. And in certain situations, that corn is really starting to lodge. So, so lots going on out there, but don't assume because, you know, oh, the majority of the corn standing okay that, there are situations where, where lodging is going to be a major problem. Pete, you know, when I get emails from the audience, I would say, you know, they cover a broad range of topics. But I would say one of the ones that the audience seems the most passionate about, and, and when I say about, I maybe should say against, is this, this idea of the branding of regenerative agriculture. And, and if I was to paraphrase most of the feedback that I get back from people, it's like, how is that different than what I'm already doing? Um, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts? There's a whole, probably a whole uh, passionate tirade that either of us could go on here. But um, what, what do you think uh, uh, about that topic and, and the branding? Because We've talked about sustainability in the past and, and people's pushback on that, but uh, the, the pushback on regenerative seems to be even stronger from, from certain components of the audience. Not everybody, but certain components. So, Sean, you could really get me up on the, on the podium, just pounding the pulpit like crazy on this one because like, it just, it's this, this concept or this perception Oh, and I actually saw it on Twitter. I, I think it was Andrew McGuire had pulled, and this is going back three or four weeks. So don't, I have to be a little careful because my memory gets fuzzy, but it was basically, oh, regenerative agriculture means no pesticides and, and no fertilizer. Mm. In your head is shit. No. Like, <laughs> right. Thank you. Like, my goodness, if we go down that route, then I will tell you that we are going to see far less production from every acre. And, and so I really, there's an article by, by Julian Little uh, in, I think, uh, Sustainable Agriculture Magazine or something like that, a really excellent article where he said, finally, finally some people are starting to look at regenerative agriculture on a unit-produced per land area farmed. And, and we really have to get down to how many bushels comes off that acre and regenerative agriculture has to start looking at the inputs on a per unit of production, not on a per acre of land farmed. And when we get to that, then the game changes and we start to get to, to something where we can measure it like we can measure those things and we can try to, you know, figure out how to do better from that standpoint. But man, regenerative agriculture and this whole perception around it 
and and this focus on less per acre, it, it's just an absolute recipe for disaster. There's actually a, a great chart. Kevin Fultz retweeted it just to, uh, yesterday, I think. It's from Our World in Data. And I love that, that organization. They put out such great global data sets. But you know, when you look at cereal production or cereal yield since 1961, since the Green Revolution happened versus population versus land used for that production, the land used is almost static. We've, we've not changed the acres to speak of since 1961. The cereal production has increased 250%. 250 populations up 150 percent cereal productions up 250 percent so that really gets us into this sustainability or this regenerative thing like it's on a per per unit produced and and that's how we're going to drive this whole process forward yeah and 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 so that's like a, a productivity equation versus like you know we, we saw this with the potential fertilizer emission reductions like when they were looking for an absolute reduction, but not necessarily on a reduction per acre, taking into consideration what the productivity was. So, yeah, there's there's different ways to definitely do that math. At the same time, it, it, a lot of this is marketing, <laughs> and, and we think about this from a from a like sort of like a product, you know, how we do our business and growing the crop or raising the livestock standpoint, like we're in, we, we think about it from an operational standpoint. And I do think at times though, okay, so if people want to hear the word regenerative, take ownership of it. How do we take advantage of the fact of, of some of this stuff? And that's the marketing, it's softer stuff and people aren't tied up in that. But I, I think there's, there, there is opportunity in it, in it too, but I don't like when we try to pigeonhole it based on it's it's you shall not do this this and this i I think that's not taking in that that's the industry then making the same mistakes as people that are trying to impose regulations on us when they don't take into consideration some of the variability because what i may have to do in the lighter sandy soil of southern alberta that what is what you would consider you know progressive and sustainable and regenerative in that area could be entirely looked upon as a horrible practice in another geography but they're dealing with different constraints, right? Like that. That's. I think we got to really take that kind of. St- and that's that's the difficulty when we're talking about a word and a definition across North America. Absolutely, and and they're buzzwords, right? They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just yeah. Uh, like I hate buzzwords. Like it just drives me nuts because everybody jumps on the bandwagon, and it actually can be quite negative to reasonable production, reasonable concern for the environment. It just, it, it, all, it, all, it can all go south rapidly. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. And, and the reality is, is just like there are some conventional practices, I'll call them, that fit into something like organic production and, and vice versa, there, there's things that some people are doing on the bleeding edge when it comes to regenerative that, that fit into, you know, broader, more conventional sort of operations. Like, and, and, but the problem is if we put these flags in the ground, then, then we may be missing some, some possibly better ways of, of, of doing things. It's, it's, we, can't, we can't get tribal about it. I guess that's the one way to look at it. 
but yeah, if if we do, we will. It will be a recipe for disaster. There's cool stuff out there. Woody Van Arkel with his living cover crop in between corn rows. He's starting to actually figure that out. White clover seems to be the key, which is kind of cool. So yeah, there's some options, but you just yeah. you pigeonhole us. We're done. Well, one of the big issues that is out there right now has to do with the Omafra GFO Dawn Survey. Results came out last week. And there are there's some good pieces of data in in that survey, and there's some also some best management practices that you need to make sure you're considering depending on where you are in the province of Ontario when it comes to your corn harvest. And when we come back, Pete and I are going to be joined by Albert Tenuta. He is of course with Omafra. You know him well. He's been on this show many times, and he's going to join us when we come back. You're listening to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio 147. Infuse some energy into your next corporate event, customer meeting, or conference with Real Ag Radio, Canada's national agriculture radio show. Create a unique experience at your next event with host Sean Haney, broadcasting Real Ag Radio live on Sirius XM, featuring exciting guests, captivating interviews, and the latest news from the agriculture community. Contact advertising at realagriculture.com or call 587-787-1795 to book your on-location with Real Ag Radio today. Before you get back in the field this year, spend some time with the Corn School on realagriculture.com. Get all the information you need on hybrid selection, planting depth, crop inputs, and more from a wide range of industry experts. A massive library of video content is available on demand when you need it most. Spend your time outside of the field, inside the classroom, with The Corn School on realagriculture.com. And welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on Agronomic Monday. Sean Haney, your host, joined by Peter Weepy. We can say co-host today, Pete, pretty much. Dang near, Sean. It's all good. I love being on with you, so it's all fun. It doesn't mean your pay is going up. No? Oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. Sorry. Oh, it, it's all good. Okay. Now, we alluded to the fact that uh, the Omafra GFO Dawn survey was completed last week. The, the results are out. And uh, we need to get down to the, the depths here of where are the concerns, what are the concerns, where are the good news stories, and uh, obviously the BMPs that come out of all this. Joining us to break it down is Albert Tenuta. He is field crop pathologist with Omafra. Albert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Great to be here with you. I'm not sure so much uh, seeing Peter Johnson as co-host. That could be a tough one for me today. Yeah, I may have created a real problem for myself, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a monster. I think so. I think so. <laughs> it's a monster. Air's <laughs> gone already. Air's gone already. Okay, Albert, talk about the, the results of this survey. Uh, the, you know, we've been talking for a number of weeks here, three to four of them, five, maybe even four, you know, five weeks. In in terms of the concern this year about dawn, of course. Everybody has the nightmare still concrete in their mind when it comes to 2018. Uh, 16 is also a year that is often referenced. Uh, what are we up against here when it comes to dawn levels in this year's corn crop based on the survey results? Yeah, Sean, as you mentioned, the GFO as well as the Ontario Agribusiness Association, OMAFRA, have always partnered over the past 10, 12 years. 
with the Dawn survey, basically to prepare both growers and industry for um, the harvest time. And uh, this year, no different than any other. Ben Ross or our corn specialist with Omafra uh, coordinated uh, the collection of 192 samples from across the province. Overall results uh, show that primarily 77% of the samples were two parts per million or lower, which is which is a good news story in terms of uh, compare, comparing it to 2018 and in other high dawn years as well. So um, that is a, a definite bonus and a key message that we want to get out there as well. But again, there are those, as you had mentioned, and you, you and Peter have mentioned uh, over the past uh, few weeks in that, that there are some areas of concern, of course, um, with uh, dawn in, in the province. And we're seeing areas such as, you know, in the southwest, parts uh, near where Peter is, north of London, and other areas that have, um, you know, two to five parts per million and greater than five parts per million. But overall, uh, the numbers show that we have a lot of good corn in the province. Uh, very similar, though, to other years, we do have those hotspots, and it's those hotspots that uh, um, need to be um, looked at, and, and, and we have the, have the idea of where they are, but it's really important for growers to, to get out there and sample and scout their fields right now and see where they're at going into the harvest. Hey, Pete, uh, take take over here. Got some questions for Albert? Yeah, absolutely. So, Albert, and, and you're right, like you, when we look at the at the survey and the map, there's some definite hot spots and you kind of look down into uh, Essex County, for example, and you go, whoa, baby. And then you look in eastern Ontario and eastern Ontario almost always is at lower risk for dawn. We I don't know, maybe you figured out why, Albert, but I can never figure out why it is that we seem to, we just don't seem to have the same risk of, of higher dawn levels in the eastern Ontario corn crop. Exact opposite with white mold. They're the, the capital of white mold in soybeans. But I, growers, even in Essex, Kent, they shouldn't, I don't think they should, should, should panic because there's, fields there that aren't high dawn and if you're in eastern Ontario we still have some some blips where there are some fields where boy that's over two parts per million so there's quite a, a, a lot of variability would you not agree all the way across even in the, in the higher risk areas no absolutely Peter we have variability across the regions we have variability on the same concession and field uh, beside each other as well. So there's a number of different uh, factors that are play here. Uh, you allude to, you know, Eastern Ontario, um, you know, when it comes to traditionally been lower risk for uh, for Don and Gibberella ear rock compared to, say, uh, southwestern Ontario, whenever we do end up with um, elevated Don levels or Jib or ear rock um, situations per year, it usually brings in southwestern Ontario, London, area, um, primarily Oxford as well, into that, that mix um, there. But Eastern Ontario has been generally lower risk. A lot of that comes around environmental conditions, so cooler temperatures in, in some regards, particularly, say, nighttime temperatures, daytime temperatures can influence the uh, potential for, for silk infection uh, with, the, with the fungus, uh, crop rotation, uh, diversity of, uh, of, of the different crops. Um, in there, all of these factors can play a critical role in the risk as well. So, and so I just oh, go ahead. I, oh, go ahead, Pete. Go ahead. Yeah, like like I zoomed in 
uh, on Middlesex County on your map, Albert, and and yeah. right where I farm, uh, there's a a field that is less than half a part per million. There's a field that is between half a part and two parts. There's another field between two and five, and there's a field that is over five parts per million. And they're all right in that little little circle where Johnson Farm actually is, where my corn crop is. So really, really important to get out and scout, right, Albert? Like in terms of managing the crop, because we want this crop to make growers money. We don't want to have a problem with, with any dawn levels going into end users. What, what kind of strategies would, are the best from that perspective? Yeah, Peter, as you mentioned, getting out there now and scout, scout your fields. Um, prioritize those fields that maybe have higher ear rot levels. Um, also collecting and sampling the grains. Uh, prior to it. So one thing that did come out of 2018 is that we're starting to see much more, um, I'll call it active management by producers um, to, to get out there and scout both pre, during, and po- at, at harvest times as well. And so talking to many of the elevators around here, many growers are bringing in a sample. And ideally, those are perfect conditions, um, situation to do because they have now an awareness of what their levels are, and they can manage it very difficult. So, for example, I was talking to some growers that sampled, they're at that critical five parts per million. They know they're going to go into those fields, harvest them as quickly as possible. Moisture is another factor that's really pushing us right now in that it's um, higher moisture, slow to, to dry down, that's causing some delay in, in harvest and we don't want to do that because that potentially could increase uh, dawn accumulations as, as well. So collecting that sample and now they've got options. You can either segregate that corn, put it away and then come back later um, and, and, and keep it away from uh, you know, their, their lower dawn testing corn as well. But it's critically important. Get out there, scout, and then you can look at separate, sample your grain properly, and, and do those combine adjustments as well to, to maximize your, your cleanest sample as possible. But again, remember, knowing what's going on in those fields is critically important because, as you said, you can have fields, and again, majority of fields are, 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 are low at this time and, and will continue to be so, and that is critically important to remember that managing those, those high-risk fields will be your priority right now. Uh, Albert, how much of a concern is it the fact that it's it's been some pretty damp, rainy weather continuing? That's very untimely. And how much is that adding to the problem? And and some of these numbers getting worse the longer this corn sits out in the field. Yeah, we've seen we've seen that in the past. We've seen that in in 2018 where we had uh, delayed harvest. Um, we couldn't get in. We had continuous dew uh, wet rain conditions, that all can increase dawn levels for sure the longer it stays, hence why we want to get get it out, harvest it, and dry it as quickly as possible. If we can get it down to, you know, that 18% or, or 15% or lower, it definitely will reduce uh, mold as well as mycotoxin uh, development. But again, uh, Sean, there's no, no guarantee that our levels will increase with those conditions, but uh, for sure, they can have a factor. They will uh, potentially do. One thing that we've noticed uh, this year and, and compared to, say, 2018 and uh, in, in a number of 
you know, my trials and that, that we had planned to sample for, uh, for Jib and for Dawn. We decided last week when we were harvesting not to, because although the disease started, it didn't develop as, as, as much as I had expected on those. And, you know, one of the big factors around that is, you know, hybrid. And we can talk about, you know, the hybrid fungicide, um, getting, getting those fungicides where they need to be, all of those things that growers can do. They've been um, using those practices, and I, help, I believe that helps reduce that risk as well. Pete? And, and so, Albert, if I can just jump in for a second, yeah. because one of the things that I think we really have learned, and if a grower goes to their field and they want to assess the actual dawn level, you can't do a hand sample and get a representative sample for dawn. Like we've learned that you actually need the combine in the field, get the two kilogram sample, grind the whole two kilogram sample. So all you can really do in the field to get to get a good idea is that visual scout until the combine gets there. And I mean, even if you take it to the elevator, if they're not doing that large grind, sometimes those those results can really vary one sample to the next. And the other thing that you did mention, and I just, but I just want to, you know, give a shout out here to, to what we did in 2018. We did a great video on combine adjustment with David Killen in 2018. It's up on the Real Ag website. We tweeted it out there last week. And you find it seems as if when the, the fungus gets into that kernel, it, it's got less integrity, so it's more likely to break apart. And so getting, leaving those fines behind in the field becomes really, really important in managing this problem. Yeah. No, absolutely, Peter. That, that whole idea around, you know, those cobs, small kernels, those fines typically will result in higher dawn, dawn con, uh, concentrations for sure. Now, so I would still encourage growers to go out there and, you know, do a representative cob sample if, if there's concern there. That will still get you a, a good idea in terms of where you're at in that. But you're bang on. One of the things that we did based on 2018 with University of Guelph, Art Chasma, Dave Hooker, Omafro, ABBA, the Mycotoxin Working Group, has looked at various different um, factors that can contribute to, to Dawn. And, and one of the Big factors. One of the big questions we had was around that variability, right? And you know, the sampling variability, the test kit variability. We we found that the by sampling or, or sending out samples to the various different elevators, uh, a blind test, we saw that the testing was the test kits worked the way they're supposed to work. It was variability in terms of the sampling, the subsample once you ground that sample. And and you're right, Peter. That two kilogram sample, that larger sample, has uh, shown to to reduce that variability, so it gives you a nice uniform um, sample where the the dawn is is distributed evenly throughout, as opposed to you know being you know hitting a spot, for instance, that was high dawn or low dawn. So uh, definitely getting a more accurate sample representation of what's in that mode. Great stuff. Well, Albert, thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, I really do appreciate it, uh, and. Uh, it- Field crop news, the, the survey results are posted? Yes, they are. They're up there. And uh, it's so at fieldcropnews.com, and uh, it's all up there. Great stuff. Kay Albert, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. We'll be right back on Real Lag Radio right after this. 
Canola is more than just a pretty face in the prairie landscape. It's a big business, both here and around the world, that requires you to be informed and up-to-date on everything it takes to grow a successful crop. The Canola School on realagriculture.com has an expert library of video resources covering markets, agronomy, and more to help you grow a healthy and profitable canola crop. Visit canolaschool.com today. Brought to you by BASF Canada and Invigor Hybrid Canola. Some farmers say they don't have time. Some farmers say fitness is not for them. Some farmers say, I don't have time to eat right. It's time to start making changes today. Join me, Sean Haney, and Gary Chambers as we cover all things fitness. That's the Fit Farmer Podcast, available on realagriculture.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Real Life Radio here on Agronomic Monday with my, well, now we've called him, my co-host, Peter Wee, Pete Johnson. <laughs> Pete, I guess, yeah. what's your takeaway from what you heard there from Albert Tenuta from Womafra? Well, I think the takeaway is, Sean, that there's concern and there should be concern. And it really comes down to growers being aware and and getting out, and I know I've talked to some growers, you know, my great friend, friend Rob, he says, don't tell growers to harvest the bad fields first. They can't do that. They just got to go to whatever field that, that is next on the list. And it's kind of like, Rob, not a chance. In this situation, you really do need to do that scouting and where possible, get out there and get it out of the field quickly when you know you're at risk. And on the other side of that, or the end, other end of that spectrum, there's corn out there, lots of it, like, I don't know, 40% that's still under 0.5 parts per million. So if that corn's standing well and you have a field that's over two, goodness sakes, take the field that's got that, that visual symptomology there and get it out of the field and do the right job with the combine and stop it. Get it dried down to stop it so that it's still under two or you know not over five because it once it gets over five that's that really uh, it, it's just very hard to, to find high paying markets for corn at that level yeah so true hey pete in a little bit of time we have left i i, I want it we now we didn't get to it last week i want to get to it this week some changes in africa in in relation to the acceptance of gmos in production talk, talk about that Oh, Sean, I'm ecstatic. It's like, yes, finally. And we talked a bit about regenerative ag- agriculture earlier on. And, you know, this is, this is one of those situations where you kind of say the people, the, the farmers in Africa, it, it's just a lot of subsistence farmers, and they need every tool possible to help them manage pests and to get better yields. And they're, they're just... Across the continent in Africa, they, they just had banned GMOs. And when I went there, one of the first things that I always got, got asked to me was, you know, if I grow GMO corn, will it kill my children? And for goodness sakes, the answer is no. If you grow GMO corn and you're having trouble with armyworm, we can put genes in there so you don't have to walk and drop sand in the, in the world of every plant to try to get that armyworm and and to have a crop to harvest so you can feed your family. So seven countries in Africa all approved the uh, approved G- 
GMOs for use. It's it really the effort of Margaret Karemba. She's kind of the head of, of an organization. I just can't recall off the top of my head the name of it, but they're the ones that were pushing that. And it's such a massive step forward. We now have the ability to use golden rice in some locations. I mean, we always have to be careful with new technology, Sean. It, we should never assume that new technology is safe, but GMOs have been around long enough. There hasn't been any any massive disasters the way that some people forecast. We have tons of science that says it's safe. Let's use the technology so that people can feed themselves and be healthy and have, you know, happy kids. It just it's a huge win. I, I'm, I'm ecstatic. I'm over the moon that we've, we're finally starting to make headway in Africa. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I think you know my perception has been that a lot of people engaged in activism against GMOs have used third world countries as, as sort of like a chess piece. And it, it's it's nothing but to the disservice of some of those third world countries. It, it's it, it's it's really funny when somebody from Los Angeles is arguing on on what Africa should or shouldn't do, and it, it's created a bunch of problems. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and and I know some people will push back because I'm a technology guy. I I really am. I believe in technology, always used appropriately. In this case. This is incredibly appropriate use of a safe technology. Yeah. yeah, well put. Okay, Pete. Well, hey, thanks for being my co-host today. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. And uh, have yourself a great week, buddy. Yeah, you as well. Thanks, Sean. I hope I get the corn golf fight in the field. That's the focus. <laughs> a lot of work to be done. If you have any feedback on today's show, send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com. Make sure you tune in tonight to The Agronomist Real Egg in prime time. And they're talking about compaction tonight, which is going to be a, a lot of fun and uh, very educational as well. You can get your CCACU credits for participating in the program. Thanks, everybody, for getting real and getting connected with Real Egg Radio. We'll be back tomorrow. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody.